All right. Well, good morning to everybody. Happy to see the faces of people in person. How nice that is. I know that you guys have had a very busy week, right? This week's homework was really packed again, as always. And I love it because how did you do with all the research on the city of Pergamum? And was it exciting and fun and interesting to you? I hope it was. I'm going to try to hit on some of the major things that are not necessarily within the text of our scripture, but that are the backdrop, the historical backdrop to this city and why these things were being said to this people group. And then we also want to try to take a little bit of a jaunt over into the subject of who these Nicolaitans might have been. Um, it, it's a mystery group, but there are some hints in scripture and also in the writings of church fathers to the you know, the guess as to what was going on there. I mean, they have some, actually, the, there's like four major writers, right? Kathy's nodding her head, so she did her work too. So don't forget that when I call on you, right? <laughs> well, you know, it's better to hear from the students than just from my mouth, right? But this is really good stuff. But before we go there, what we want to do is take a drop back into Smyrna just to warm you up a little bit. Now, we have been doing the, the letters to the seven churches. So we're in part one of Revelation. We are, and by the way, it is Revelation, not shuns. There's no S on it. Just for those of you who know that, it's hard to discipline yourself not to say that. Sometimes there's a possessive. So you do say the, the information that's in the revelations, whatever passage, but it is revelation. Okay. In any event, we've been going through these seven churches. We've covered Ephesus, which is a heart, the, probably the, one of my favorite places as far as uh, great memories there, because we pretty much lived there. We, I was telling Kaylee earlier that, you know, it was only a couple of hours from my home when we were living in Izmir, which is ancient Smyrna. And so we would drive back and forth. Anytime we had dignitaries come in because my husband was in the military, we were down at Ephesus. And of course we did the seven churches route many times in the times that we were there because we spent a total of eight years in that country. Um, so we did Ephesus, then we did Smyrna last week. Now Smyrna was the place I lived for three years. So I especially am familiar with, with it. I wish I had actually had more time to you know it's really interesting when you're living there you're you're living there right so you've got kids in school you've got meetings to be at you're involved in service and programs and I lived at the church of course um, but Smyrna was the suffering church and there was there was what did you remember about what we looked at last week I just want to kind of review it how was Jesus described to us concerning the church of Smyrna the first and the last. There you go. There is our contrast to what, who was dead and now is alive. And so the subject of life and death was, was ended up being the major point in this book on the whole. This is how Jesus describes him. So in that, what he's saying is, look, I was dead, but what? Now I'm alive. I have resurrected. And what is the power in that for a for a church body that's constantly under the pressure of persecution, real Christian persecution, what is the likelihood and the chances of the, the believers in that city 
they could seriously, they could die. And many, 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 many did. We talked about that last week. Thousands upon thousands have died in the, just in the church of Smyrna itself in that particular vicinity throughout the ages, right? And the, the one we looked at when we did our work last week was who? Do you remember some of the names of the people that we talked about? Who died in Smyrna that... Antipas, okay, that's this week. Last week, Poly, Polycarp, everybody got it. There you go, good. Polycarp, who, who died for his faith. Now, the one thing that we talked about there was who was really the aggressor against the Smyrna church? Who was it that, that was rebuked in the text? That's right, the Jews that were not Jews. Now, what does that mean? How can you be a Jew that's not a Jew? When Jesus is saying this, it's not like a weirdo out here saying, oh, you're a Jew, but no, you're not a Jew. But Jesus is the one that he says they, they, are, they call themselves Jew, but what are they? A synagogue of Satan. And so we talked about kind of from the perspective of the message to the church, right? And the church are, are believers, right? And he's saying those Jews who claim to be Jews, they're not. Okay, so who were, who were, um, okay, let me just give you the balance on this now. Because last week we basically stated if, if you didn't come into faith, if you didn't believe the promises that God gave to Abraham concerning a land, a seed, and a nation. And that seed, according to 1 Corinthians 3.16, is Christ himself, right? So he's the fulfillment of that promise. If you don't believe that, then you're not really a Jew. Why? Because you're not a Jew by faith. The same faith that in the end, when God made covenant with Abraham, he said um, he gave him the gospel when he told him, I'm promising you these things. And he said, because he believed concerning the seed, therefore righteousness was credited to him. He believed God and righteousness was credited to him. That was his salvation, believing on what? The seed. Who was the seed? Christ. Okay, so that's concerning the intimate personal relationship of a Jew, right? But what we also want to do, just as an opening today, is I want to balance that with the other side of understanding the subject of the Jews in the book of Revelation. Because there's also a, a covenant that God made, not about just the sea, but about the land and the nation, right? What has he promised that he is going to do concerning the land and the nation of Israel? He's going to give them the land, and he did initially, but, but what happened? They lost it because of sinning, and they were dispersed throughout the world. But Ezekiel tells us a beautiful story about dry, dead bones that he sees in a vision, and then all of a sudden, they begin to rise up, and then the breath of God has placed them. So what was that uh, vision about, and have we seen that fulfilled at this point? Okay, yes, explain, explain a little bit more on that. If you look at Israel today, How in the world did that happen? I thought they had died and were dispersed. Right, okay, so 
right now what we are seeing and we were talking about this also a little bit earlier see we do a lot of talking before class it's pretty fun <laughs> but we were talking about how little by little god is fulfilling these various things and there are a lot of things already that god has fulfilled he has begun to do exactly as he said in in the ezekiel prophecy he's bringing them now back to the land and he's beginning to vitalize, revitalize the land itself. It's beginning to sprout and spring forth and bear fruit and cities are being built and people are again living upon it. And they do have their city now as of uh, a year, a couple years ago now, they've got Jerusalem back as their capital, which is like oh, historical, right? I can remember in sermons from ancient days how they couldn't have even imagined how, how this could actually be literal Israel that God was talking about, that it had to be something else. And this is how we ended up with this replacement theology where we replaced Israel with, with the church, right? Okay. But now we have Israel back on their land. And now all of a sudden people are going, oh, wow, God was being literal, right? I want to read a passage because here's what I want you to keep in mind as we are studying and going into this down the road. To counterbalance with the idea that the Jews are not Jews, they're a synagogue of Satan. God is not rejecting Israel, is he? Who said that? Paul in Romans. He, he asked all these rhetorical questions. The Jews are not rejecting far. He says, no, not at all. And then he goes on and he talks about the olive tree and how branches have been broken off because of what? Why would you be broken off and cut off from God? For, sin, okay, unbelief, sin, which is sin, right? Because of, a, now this is what Romans teaches, that through unbelief, God had to cut some of them off. But in this new covenant, because the seed has come, you and I who are Gentiles can be grafted in to that olive tree, but it's still the olive tree. And who is the olive tree? The nation of Israel, not the individual Jew. We don't become a Jew as in, um, what do you call it, biologically or, or ethnically, right? But we get grafted into their promises and the covenant that was promised to them. Because of our faith, which is the faith of Abraham, which is why they were said, he said of them, they're a synagogue of Satan. If they were really Abraham's children, they would have believed, right? But he still has another part of this prophecy that we're yet waiting to see fully fulfilled. He's beginning to do it. The, the people are beginning to be put back on their land. But are these people calling on God and saying, he is my God and we are his people? Are they? Is Israel as a nation a Christian nation? No, they are still the synagogue of Satan to this day because they're still rejecting it. So God has got to take us to a place where Israel, the nation, becomes his people. And that's what we're seeing in the book of Revelation as we go into this. That's where we're headed. That's what God is going to work out in these last days that we are studying. Let me read to you out of Jeremiah. I can see it. Jeremiah 31. I'm sorry. Do I look like a doofus here? Yeah, I know I do. Okay. Um, it says, behold, days are coming. And this is in, starting in verse uh, 27 of 31 in Jeremiah. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of man 
with the seed of beast. In other words, he's going to put them back on the land. So he's begun to do that part of it already. And it will come about that as I have watched over them to pluck them up, to break them down, to overthrow, to destroy, and to bring disaster, so I will also watch over them to build, to plant, and to plant, declares the Lord. So now we're in the process of the building and the planting. We are actually seeing the fulfillment of this right here. It's so exciting. In verse 29, he says, in those days, they will not say again. In other words, when it's fulfilled, when it's completed, when we hit the end of these days that we're studying in the book of Revelation, in those days, they will not say again, the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge, but everyone will die for his own iniquity. Each man who eats the sour grapes, his teeth will be set on edge. Behold, things are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of my land of Egypt or out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and on their heart I will write it and I will be their God and they shall be my people and they shall not teach again each man his neighbor to, uh, and his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me. The, the ones that are going to be put back on the land in that day at the end of Revelation are going to be believers. That's who's going to survive those years of the, of the tribulation. And he says, from, uh, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin, and I will remember them no more. Thus says, says the Lord, who gives the Son for light by day and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. And the Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order departs from me, declares the Lord, then the offspring of Israel shall also cease to be from being a nation before me forever. Isn't that amazing? So what does he promise that he's going to do with Israel, the nation? One day they are going to be put back on their land and they are going to be his people. And they are going to be a nation before him forever. Forever. So back in Smyrna where we said they're a synagogue of Satan, pooey pooey, right? <laughs> that, that is speaking of the individual relationship of faith in Jesus Christ in the church age. What are we studying right now? Letters to who? The churches. So keep that in mind. But there is a day when the church age will come to its end. The last of the Gentile will come in and then Jesus will begin his work on restoring Israel to be his nation. And sadly, it's going to take these seven years to purge and refine and purify his nation and bring out of it those who are refined, those who have put their faith in him those who have bowed the knee to him. You're, it's going to be really fun when we get to go look at those verses again later. But I wanted to start this morning by clarifying that because I, I know we left last week with, with um, the subject of those Jews who are not Jews. That's speaking about personal relationship with God. 
a true Jew is one who has faith like Abraham did. That's, that's what we have. And therefore, according to Romans, we, we get to be grafted in. Isn't that a privilege? But we are not replacing Israel, the nation. Okay, so I just wanted to clarify and make sure everybody understood that part of it, okay? While we're still there. Okay, so that was review. Now let's talk about your homework this week. So this week in your homework, this is just going to be a little part of your 101 training. I would just want to show you how I do sometimes a synopsis concerning my homework, even before I get started on it, because I think it's another little helpful thing, depending on how your brain works. Everyone is slightly different, but it's helpful to do it this way sometimes. So what I do is I go in and I read the homework instructions and, and all the questions. And after I get through with day one, I put a very small point-by-point uh, point instruction about what it is I'm doing on day one, right? So if you go open your day one for this week's homework and just follow with me and we're going to go through all five days i'm just going to show you how i summarize it now my summary does not have to be yours as long as you kind of get in the habit of doing this for those of you who are struggling to really get the understanding of inductive work i think this would be helpful for you also besides just reading your how-to study book you can do this for yourself independent of that okay so day one uh we filled in our chart on our messages to the churches, right? The one I just went through with you, okay? Um, we looked at interpreting the, the, the symbolic vision of the sharp two-edged sword. Remember, this is still a vision. It is a letter to the churches, but it was by vision. And so in this vision, he saw this sharp two-edged sword coming out of the mouth of Jesus. So we need to know if we're going to do inductive work, what is that two-edged two sword? What is scripture teach us about that, right? So in this case, what we did in day one is we let scripture interpret scripture through these cross references. And then we looked to conclude from that what that sharp two-edged sword was. Pretty cool, right? So we're going to do that on our board. We're going to go through those verses. Day two, flip over to day two. Your major subject there is that you hold fast my name, right? If you read the introduction part that Kay gives to you, you can, if you read it carefully to discern what is she drawing you into, you can even just use a yellow highlighter and highlight what it is the major subject is that you can see she's talking about. Because also what will help you is uh, when you're doing your cross references, you know what you're looking for, right? Otherwise you're doing cross references and you're like, I'm confused now, what am I doing here, right? Okay, so you hold fast my name. Why is this a significant thing? Of what value does a name have? Biblical history. We're going to look at the name uh, was very significant in biblical times, right? It shows what a person's character or characteristics, right? Their, their skills, their strengths, um, and what it means to deny Jesus's name. What, how in how, in fact, was this church denying his name if, in fact, that's what they were doing? So you're looking at the subject, you hold fast my name. And so she gave us cross-references by his name. So we went in and we looked at the name of Jesus to say, well, what is his name? And we, we tr hopefully tried to discern these titles that explain to us, what does that mean? If we are denying his name, what does that mean? Does that make sense? Okay, day three. Uh, flip over to day three. 
Are you all with me? Okay, you have not denied my faith. Again, cross-references on what it means not to deny. We are observing and clarifying what it means not to deny the faith in day three. Okay, day four. Now, see, it's not a lot of information I wrote down. Do you see how synoptically I'm doing it? I'm just really honing it down to the major subject of what I'm doing in each of the day's homework so I can follow her train of thought. Day four, we were looking at some key subjects, the th uh, Satan's throne and the teaching of Balaam, because those were two subjects that came up in the letter, correct? Uh, so she gave us that cross-reference, which was quite lengthy in numbers. I don't know about you all, but I have a big stack of pages on that. Um, and we looked... Um, I think I'll just leave it at that because that's really the main. I gave some more conclusion statements on my page here, but you don't need those. Okay, uh, we looked also in day four at idolatry and spiritual fornication in the days of the apostles from Acts 15. So she took us to that one. We also then looked at Balaam in the New Testament because the one of the best um, commentaries you're going to ever get on something that's said in the Old Testament is if it's repeated in the New which is really cool because often it's, it's either one of the apostles or it's Jesus that's giving you this information. And in particular, when it's Jesus and Jesus says this about that person or that about that person, and you're going, okay, but the world's denying that person ever existed, right? There was never a flood, right? Okay, but Jesus said there was, right? <laughs> like in the days of Noah, he spoke about it. So we did a Balaam search in the New Testament and we did cross-references, primarily in Jude, okay, just a few verses in Jude. So she was concise on it. She didn't want to take you too far with it. You could have done way more, but it gave you a nice balance, Old Testament and New Testament, and then looking at the moral implications of what was going on with Balaam, that, that subject about uh, this, how Balaam was teaching to put a stumbling block before Israel. And then day five, we looked at the Nicolaitans, right? Or the Nicolaitans. I'm not sure how that's pronounced. I'm not the Nickelodeons, but that's what I want to call them every time. <laughs> every time I say, I know the Nickelodeons. They won't care. We don't care. <laughs> okay. But we do know this. These Nicolaitans were in their midst, right? They were also, like the Balaam uh, false teaching was there. There was also this false teaching of the Nicolaitans. There really is, as I said earlier, no record for us that's um, biblical, right, about them beyond this statement here. But we did do a word study on the name, right? And the result again was what? Uncertain. <laughs> and we identified from the text of Revelation, the two two references of them, it gives us some, some clues. And probably the biggest clues come from the writings of the fathers of the church. So we went back and looked at those. So we'll talk about that as well. So that in essence gives you a synopsis of what you were doing. Now, if you had written this up for yourself before you started your homework by simply reading the questions and writing out what, where your, what your goal is on each day, that might be a great tool for you. I don't know. Everyone learns differently. I'm just trying to throw out as many skill helps that I can as we go along with this. You're liking that, huh? Oh, good. Okay. Well, for you know, uh, what do they say? If at first you don't succeed, 
no, read the directions. <laughs> that's, that's the rule. <laughs> so these are your directions and this would give you the direction you were heading in and you would see what's going on. At least you would at least have a, a little bit clearer focus. It, may, it still may not clarify everything, but it will give you guidance, okay? So that's another little tool that I like to do and I often do, okay? I've gotten lazier as I've gotten into this longer, but it's important to try to do that. Okay, so 101 teaching all done, right? We're good. Any questions on that? No, not one question. Yay, that means you guys are going to be experts on it. And next week, you can come and show me your uh, synopsis for your homework. Okay, so now this week, we're, we're looking at Pergamum. Um, we're going to let me start by just reading a part of this, just to refresh your thoughts on it a little bit, okay? Now, to the angel of the church in Pergamum, right. Now, who do we know the angel is? Is this an angel that, that's spiritual, that's a spirit, or is it a physical person? Huh? In other, in other contexts, but in this context, what do you know it is? It really kind of has to be because he's going to read it to the congregation and those who hear are going to obey it, right? Am I correct? So, I mean, the logic is that he says, and, to, he says you're, and not only that, but John is writing to him. John, sit down and write this to him. Write to the angel of the church in Pergamum. The word angel simply, simply means messenger. And it can be translated pastor, overseer, deacon. I mean, it can be... Anybody that's basically the voice uh, of the church, who speaks to the church and instructs, okay? So it simply means messenger. In this case, obviously it has to be a human being because he's going to speak to these, this church and give them this instruction, okay? Okay, so the one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith, even the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you because you have some who hold the teaching of ba Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel. One, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and two, to commit acts of immorality. So you also have some who, in the same way, hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So now this is a second uh, group that is causing a stumbling, a stone to Israel. Therefore, repent, or else I am coming to you quickly. Um, and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So... Again, here we see this is through the Holy Spirit speaking through John, writing to a human being who is going to speak these things to them. And he says, let them hear these words. To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone, which no one knows but he who receives it. Okay, so that starts us where we're at today with Pergamum. The first thing we want to do then is talk about our power to stand. Now, if we are going to be a church who does not fall prey to the things that Pergamum had fallen prey to, we need to know what is it that will help us not do that? What is our power not to become like they did, right? Where he actually, 
threatens him. He says, listen, repent or else I am coming to you. Now, this is interesting because I am coming to you in case you haven't figured out yet. Well, maybe I should just ask the question. Have you figured out yet what this means? I am coming to you. Who is he coming to? The church. So I'm coming to you in the church age. Did you, did you pick up on that? What coming is this talking about? Is this talking about his second coming? And he's going to come to this church and do what? Dis discipline them, right? Make war with them with the sword of his mouth. Now, do you remember how this book opened? What John saw when he saw Jesus for the first time? He saw him in the midst of the lampstands. And who are the lampstands? The church. So that is today in this era of history, which we are living in right now, have been for over 2,000 years since the birthing of it, right at the day of Pentecost. So this coming is not speaking of the second coming. It's speaking of a physical, or actually I should say a spiritual coming of the power and the work of Jesus as he refines, purifies, and purges his church. So if that doesn't make you a little bit nervous, that if you have fallen prey, if we as a church fall prey to what Pergamum fell prey to, Jesus will come in our midst, spiritually, of course, and he will, through vessels and tools and whatever means he chooses to use, he will make war with us with, with the sword of his mouth. Now, you can even take that down, I think, to the personal level, would you not say? that each of us individually, God is watching over each one of us. And so each one of us are in danger of this discipline. Hebrews speaks of it, right? If you are a child of God, what father does not discipline his child? So you can guarantee that if you and I step out of line in this way, he, he who is dwelling in the midst of his church, who is watching over it in all times and throughout all history, he says, if you are not going to, if you will not repent, I will give you time to repent. I think that's kind of cool. But if you will not repent, I am coming to you with this sort of my mouth. Okay. Yeah, don't make me come down there. There you go. Exactly. God. <laughs> that's exactly right. <laughs> okay. So let's look at then the identifying qualities that we learned about Jesus from this particular letter. How, how he is identified uh, pertains directly to and relates directly to the problem that is going on there. So he's identified as, yeah, the one who has the sharp two-edged sword. Okay. And that's in Revelation 2, 12. Okay. Uh, and where does this sword come from according to Revelation 1? Okay. Oh. Okay. Out of his mouth. Okay. Yes. 
becomes a two-edged sword. Okay, give me those references again. You, one, oh, isn't that interesting? I didn't catch that. And 216. Okay, good. <laughs> okay, so then what we did, since this is now a subject, this two-edged two sword becomes a subject for us, yes? So then what she did was she had us do those cross-references. Let's talk about the cross-references. What, what is the sword? Okay, and what verse and how did you get that? Well, hello, Miss Diane. Come on in and join us. Um, you know what? There's a spot right here. Oh, there's two of you. Uh, do we have a spot where there's room for two? Thank you, Sarah. That's awesome. We'll get you both right together back there. Hi, we're happy to have you. Well, or she can sit back there. Sarah's moving over. Yep. Yeah, I know. Thank you, Sarah. I know their their transport came, comes at the time, whatever time it comes. So you're just at the mercy of the transport. So shall I continue while you guys settle them? Or we, shall we wait? Okay, I'm going to go ahead and continue teaching while you all are getting settled. Is that okay, Diane? All right, thank you. And tell me again your friend's name. This is Stephanie. Stephanie. Hi, Stephanie. Very nice to have you with us. Boy, what a... I love this. This is awesome. What a nice treat for us. Okay, so we just gained two more. Our room is getting really full, huh? <laughs> this is awesome. Okay, so now let's talk about the cross-references. The first one, now tell me again what you said the, the two-edged sword is. The word of God. Now, where did you draw that conclusion from? Uh, so you're in day one of your homework. And it would be the cross-references that you looked up on that subject. Okay, Hebrews. What did you see in Hebrews? Okay. Okay, that, that describes what the Word of God is for. So let's hold that one for, for the next point on our, on our list. Let's first identify what that sword is through that reference that she was giving us in Ephesians. Go to Ephesians 6.13. Somebody read that verse for me. I know it's really hard. Listen, if you don't do your homework, you can't keep up. It's going to be tough because <laughs> I travel quickly. Okay, 6.17 then. Okay, so he says it's the word of God, the word of God. God, which is sharper than any two-edged sword. That one was really helpful. Was uh, you said that was was where? Okay, you guys got to give me the. Okay, give me the words, word for word. I'm just writing what you guys are telling me here. Tell me. Okay, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. 
right? Yes. Okay, got it. <laughs> got it. Ephesians 6.17. Okay. Um, it, I don't know why I put 6.13, but it must be where it started, the reading. Okay. All right. So now we've identified what it is. Now let's, let's do um, what was mentioned earlier in Hebrews 4, right? Now let's go and describe how... What is the function and purpose of this specific sword? It obviously, it's different than a human sword, right? What does a human sword do? It cuts, it tears flesh, it plunges into you and puts you to death, right? What is the purpose of this sword, according to the Hebrews 12, 412? Yes, living and active. I have to find a new marker because this one is, I'm having so much trouble. I have to push so hard to make it right on the board here. Okay. Uh, that one's empty. I don't know either. That would have been me and I don't know why. <laughs> Stupid lady. Okay, word of God. Uh, it's okay. I own it. I'm blonde. No, it's okay. No, I have no problems with it at all. I'm throwing stuff around. I'm just like that lady who does the quilting shows when she's teaching people and she throws stuff over. Or who was the the cook? Um, Julia Childs. You know, just oh, no problem. Oh, it slipped on the floor. It's okay. Put it back. <laughs> right. Okay. Well, that's kind of me and my. You know, when I'm teaching. Okay, it's the word of God, and it's sharper than any two-edged sword. And it's number one. It's for it's for the purpose of doing what, Rebecca? You do kind of a contrast. Yeah. Okay. Okay, so that's interesting. It's living as opposed to something that puts you to death. Right. Okay. So it's living and it's active and. And then it's penetrating soul on one side and spirit on the other. Okay. 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 Four. Uh, my text said piercing, right? As far as division of soul and spirit. That's very interesting. So obviously, this is a spiritual weapon of some sort, correct? Are you beginning to grasp that in your minds? That this is different from a human physical sword. This is a sword that does a work that relates to the, to the spirit of a man and the soul of a man. Isn't that awesome? Okay. And then number three, I like this one a lot too. It's able to do what? Wow, is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And that's, so those are the things that it, uh, it does. When you consider what it, 
what the work of this particular sword of the spirit does, what do you see very clearly is its goal or its intent? To get down to the bottom of the truth. It's to examine a person to know whether they are, as a matter of fact, if you go back and read Hebrews 4 in its context, you know what comes before Hebrews 4? Hebrews 3. Thank you, Diane. <laughs> Thank you. One brilliant person in the room. Actually, somebody up here. I think it was Kathleen last week. So I said, I can't find it. She's always oh, follows the verse you're looking for. And I went, okay, funny. But yes, because in Hebrews 3, what it was talking about just before he enters into chapter 4 is how the children of Israel were not able to enter into the promised land. Why? Because of unbelief. And though so in chapter four, then it begins talking about entering into the rest of God. What is the rest of God? It's, it's a pseudonym for your salvation. I mean, we're not going to go in to teach the whole of, of Hebrews. It's a complicated book. But Hebrews, I mean, I, it's not too hard for us because we're that good. But Hebrews four, <laughs> yeah, you all are funny. Okay, but Hebrews four is talking about your salvation and he's saying here this is a sword it's sharper than any two-edged physical sword it's sharper than that it goes deeper than that it is for the purpose of not only just knowing what's going on with your soul and your spirit but also it says your thoughts and the intentions um yes Oh, that's a good one. I love that, Rebecca. So what Rebecca is telling us is that she used another inductive skill, which is to visualize it. She drew out a picture of a sword and she put these points that we just pulled from the text of, of scripture. And on each side, she showed the balance between what one thing did versus the other. And in doing that, it helped her to... Um, really mull around sort of in her brain and her thinking about what it is that God is really doing with the sword that comes out of his mouth, right? And since the sword is the one that comes out of his mouth, this is one that is a spiritual penetration and it's for a spiritual purpose. And what is God's end purpose in all of this? That's right. His, to sit, his purpose is not to put you to death, but to bring you to life. Right? Isn't that amazing? It is to put to death the old man, maybe, and to bring to life the new man. That could be your, count, your balance on that. But he says with it, in Revelation 2, with this sword, though if they do not correct the problem that's going on in Pergamum, what is he going to do with this same sword, which he intends to use it to bring you to life, eternal life? What is it that he's going to do if you don't make a correction, if you do not repent, church, Pergamum, right? What is, what's he going to do in 2.16? With it, if, I'm going to put it on here, if you do not repent, Um, it says that Jesus will make war and who's he going to make war with? 
This them. <laughs> yeah, who, no, who are holding, now that's a good question. What did it mean to be holding? I wish I could remember where my uh, word study was on that. Do you remember what it means to hold? It's in my, I've got it on my observation worksheet, I think. What does it mean to hold fast? Yes, to hang on tight. It's a, it's actually a pretty easy interpretation just in reasoning of it, right? Go ahead. Okay. Yes. Right. You're absolutely right. Because in order to hold fast to them, you'd have to be denying the other. It's a choice between who are who is it that you're going to hold fast. You cannot serve two masks. That is, in essence, would you not say that is what the message is here? Uh, to hold, let me give it to you. To hold, hold, and it's number, I'm going to give you the, the key, key word on this. It's 2902. Did anybody else do a word study on this? No? It's 2902. It means to not let go, to keep carefully and faithfully, or to continue in, or even to carry out. Okay. Um, to not let go. Not let go. Um, to keep. And then I, I won't put all the rest of it, but you can look that up for yourself. That's the word study on the word to hold. Okay. So that'll help you with that. So them who are holding on to, right, the teachings of the Nicolaitans. I think I just spelled that wrong. T-A-T. Yeah. A-I. I guess I had it right. <laughs> okay, Nicolaitans. That's in that's in Revelation uh, two. Okay, two fifteen, and then the other group was the the teachings of Balaam. Okay, and that's in which verse? 14. So we have two, four. I just reversed them in the order that they are in scripture, but they're still the thing. So who is he going to make a war with? It is with Balaam? Is it with the Nicolaitans? No, it's those who are holding fast to their teachings. This is very interesting. If you did not catch this, there's a big difference. It's not like he's coming after the ones who are spreading this message specifically, although certainly he will deal with them also because they are also responsible, right? He will either weed them out or he will discredit them. He will shame them. They will take a fall in some way, shape, or form eventually. He's saying he's going to come against this teaching, but he's specifically saying he's going to come against those who hold 
fast to this teaching. That would be those who are listening to it and beginning to apply it in their lives. Now, this is how do you see this working out in the church? Now, if there's a, if there's a teaching going on, apparently this is, would you say this is a message that is trying to say, you need to weed this out of your church, this teaching? Kinda. Is, is it aggressive against the, the, the false teacher in this case? Or is it against the one who's holding it fast? It's the one who's holding it fast. So don't get that confused because the next letter is going to address the one who's bringing the false messages. The false teachers will be addressed next. But in this letter, he's saying to you and I who are listening to it and holding it fast, I'm coming after your heart. I'm going to use my two-edged sword to pierce through these things, even the intentions of your heart, right? Your thoughts and your intentions. I think that, that the more you evaluate each of the letters to this church, what it seems like is, is these seven letters in the totality, they kind of hit on almost every quality or aspect of church life and the believer's life in Christ. And in this one, he's specifically saying to you who, is, who are accepting this bad teaching, what? Repent, right? He's saying repent. Don't do it. You must repent, okay? Um, oh, there it was right here. <laughs> I knew I hid it on my sheet somewhere. Okay, now. Power to stand is the name. So tell me what we learned about the name of Jesus. And I don't have room to put it on here. Let me make, can I put it over here? Well, they won't be able to see it on the, yeah, let's put on here the name. The name to hold fast. Now, what did we look at? We looked at cross references, correct? Um, Isaiah, Matthew, Acts, Psalms. Are you there in your homework? Okay. Tell me what you found from Isaiah 9. What is the name that we are to hold fast? How is it described for us? Yes. Mighty God. Okay. We could write all that, but we're going to start with this, the mighty God. Is that correct? Mighty God, and that's in Isaiah 9-6, and then it goes down, Counselor, give me some of the rest of those, Kristen. Eternal Father, Eternal. yes, Eternal Father, and Prince of Peace. See, I didn't even have room to get all this on my, on my teaching chart. It was just so full. Okay, so that's in Isaiah 9, 6. What else did we learn? What about Matthew? That Jesus is your Savior. Jesus is your Savior. And that was Matthew 1. We looked at 21 to 23 in the reference there. And is, is this, are you still in Matthew? Okay, so he's your savior. And what else is he? Emmanuel. Oh, I love this one. What does Emmanuel mean? God 
with us. I love that. That's what the de definition of Emmanuel is. God with us. Is that all in there for you? Okay. What about Philippians 2, 9 to 11? His name, his name is above every name. So in other words, there are no other gods. There are no other, hu for sure, human beings. Because one of the other things besides false god worship going on there, what was the other worship thing that had going? Who else were they told that they must Caesar, they must bow down to Caesar. So they were literally taking a human person, a man, and paying homage to him as if he were a god. So in this case, he's saying, no, there is no name other than Jesus, right? Okay, and um, what does it say in Acts 4? No other name by which... You may be saved. And that's uh, Acts 4.12. And, oh, I love this one too. <laughs> Psalm 138, 2 and 3. This is one of those times I really do like to go right through your homework pattern because we're talking about the name of Jesus. And we are speaking about the fact that he is saying that you are holding fast to these other teachings. And I'm telling you, you need to hold fast to my name, right? You need to hold fast to my teachings. You need to hold fast. You must, I love the way Rebecca put it was, you know, there's the flip side of that is in order to hold, or no, it was Diane. In order to let go, you have to embrace the one or the other. It's a choice, right? Determine this day whom you shall serve. Scripture teaches us that, right? Okay, so what did you see in Psalm 138? This is the last one we're going to look at here. Yes, you have exalted your name above everything else, and we praise your name. Is is in there? Does it speak about his name being truth? Go ahead, say it again. Loving kindness and truth. Now, this is real powerful because if his name is loving kindness, what does that mean? There you go. It's the covenant term. What, and what is the reference to then? When it comes to the idea of loving kindness, if he's a loving kindness God, he keeps his covenant. He keeps his word because his word is, and it follows it with truth. So loving kindness and truth actually go very well together. So he, his name, um, he is loving kindness and truth. There's another verse that speaks in the same manner, right? I am the way, the truth, and the life, right? Psalm 138, 2 to 3. Okay, I think that's sufficient for us. And I hope that you all did a pretty good job. We can probably turn this back now. I'm done with that particular list. Okay, there you go. Oh, very good. Is that good? Okay. Okay, now that was day one and day two, basically, because those are the two subjects we covered there. Now let's move into day three.
we're moving along pretty quick, but yes. Uh huh. Oh, we did. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Go ahead. Go ahead. We're getting there. Yep. We're getting there now. We're getting there when we get into day four. Right now we're gonna have we're gonna cover. I know what I've done because I started out by explaining how you can do a synoptic observation. I patterned my homework after what I explained to you here. Is it starting to kind of make sense to you a little bit? I hope so. I'm trying to teach method and as well as teach the lesson. It's it's a little bit complicated, but I really want students to be able to grab hold of how this method is so powerful if you become familiar enough with it to really understand what it is you're, that you're doing and why. You know, it's not just a matter like it used to be, fill in the blank. You know, and they would lead you to the answer and almost tell you the answer, and then you'd say, Oh yeah, Jesus. God love <laughs> was one of the or Bible. It was one of those, right? But I'm trying to teach you the process of analytical thinking, where you analyze the things that you're looking at and you ask those in, interrogation questions, who, what, why, when, where, and how. What am I looking at here? Why is this letter written to these people? What does God want us to do with it? How does this apply to my life today? Because we're looking at an ancient city, Pergamum. I mean, I stood in the ruins of Pergamon on more than one occasion, and there it is nothing but a, a heap and a rubble. What do you think that means about what he, he promised to them? If you do not repent, what? I am coming, and I will remove you, really. I will, uh, I will make war with you. Thank you. I will make war with you with the, with the sword of my mouth. And basically, the, the implication there is that I will put an end to you if you do not repent. You are my church, and if you're going to represent me, I am the loving kindness and truth God. And in loving kindness and truth, there's a covenant relationship between you and I, church. And if you're in covenant with me, what is your responsibility in that, in that covenant? Once justification has accomplished, right, once the blood has saved you, which is free, 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 free grace, right? Free, 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 right? Commercial again. So God has given to us that justification by simply by believing that what he says is true about who he is and about what he's going to do for us. That gift is established. Now, once that's done, that's called covenant. You have entered into covenant. The blood has been shed and that covenant has been cut. Okay, now what? Well, now what you have to do is walk in it. We're talking sanctification now. Jesus is talking to them not about salvation. He's talking to them about the sanctification work that should be going on in the body of Christ, in the individual's uh, believer's life. So you and I, we need to come to understand as we look at this process, why is he teaching them the things that he's teaching them? Why did he give us these specific names about himself? What do those names really mean? So then you do all those cross-references to expound on it. It just takes you to a deeper, fuller, more robust understanding of exactly what's in the name of Jesus, mighty God, everlasting Father, Counselor, Prince of Peace. I did that all mixed up, I know. But, it, but really, how do, you, how do you respond to the one that says, in loving kindness, 
I expect you to also walk in my truth because I am truth. Be holy because I am holy, right? That's not working, working for your salvation. Your salvation is already established. I'm wanting to know what are you doing to exhibit that in a way that's appropriate, that will bring people into faith. Are you catching what I'm saying? Okay, I'm seeing real sleepy eyes. Everybody stand up and wiggle around. <laughs> stand up and wiggle around. Give yourself a little break because I know your brain's shut off. I know children's ministry. I know children's ministry. <laughs> Father Abraham. Yes. Yeah. Uh, well, there are there are still a subculture that's kind of underground, sort of in the Ephesus area, but not no. But there is no city of Ephesus any longer. Yep, and he did, and he did. Yep. Yes. And the mosquitoes came and they got malaria. Yes, exactly. Huh? Smyrna. And um, what's the other one with no condemnation? Is it Philadelphia? I can't remember. Oh, we'll know when we get there. But but Smyrna, there are still churches in my, in the city of Izmir. Yes. Yep. <laughs> Okay, are we ready to go back now? Did you wake up enough? I'm sorry, I know it's really hard. If I were the student, I'd be sleeping through me too. <laughs> Is it warm? Can we? Yeah, there's no way to get it cooler. Yeah. I'm sorry, y'all, we're taking, they're being crazy back there. You should see what they're doing. <laughs> Okay. Okay, let's get started. All right, now, class, settle down. <laughs> okay. Okay, now, so what we have done is we've, we have now already completed day one and day two's homework in what we've observed so far. We're ready. We're now already into day three. Now, normally I do not do it this way. As you know, I jump all over the place and I don't, I have to sometimes occasionally say I'm in day three or I'm in day five and help you find that spot. But most of, most of the time I do it that way, but this time I'm doing it a little differently because I really want you to understand why this uh, synoptic, uh, lesson plan that we went through earlier, how this can be a tool that really does help you to kind of plot out what you're doing and what and how, you know, where you're heading. Okay. All right. There, I can tell you, somebody asked me this earlier about other teachers. I, I have uh, people who approach me all the time who say, I've been in other precept classes. They're nothing like this one. And I, you know, I didn't learn the method. I didn't understand it. I got so frustrated. And I said, well, in my class, I like to teach method while I'm teaching the, the subject, whatever it is. And it does sometimes take up a little bit more time, which is why my classes last an hour and a half instead of an hour, because I try to slip in all this other stuff. But I just feel like in the end, my students walk away. One day you are independent of me. You do not need me anymore. You know the method, you know the system, you know all the tools, you understand it. And when you, and listen, you college girls, as you guys go off to college and you do your, you're going to learn that these methods I'm teaching you will be really helpful in your personal homework 
English, history, anything where there's reading and you have to do comprehension, math, I'm sorry, you're on your own. Can't help you there. <laughs> but, but it will teach you that. But it will also teach you some tools like visualizing things, drawing things out, which Rebecca is obviously doing regularly without even being told. The idea that she drew a sword and then took the words from the scriptures and wrote them on as a balance. It does this and it does this. It does this and it does this. And for her, that helped her visualize that particular scripture awesome way to do it. And that is one of the tools in your toolbox for inductive Bible study that is very, very helpful. Anytime you're doing homework, even if it's history, sometimes just drawing a picture of what's told to you. When you go to do your test, guarantee you're going to remember it because you'll have that visual in your head. Last week, we visualized uh, Luke, right? And the place called Hades or Sheol. And I'd love to be able to have a full teaching on that one day for, for those of you who have not been with me long enough. But we, and I've taught that one many times in our classes. I, Kathy's going, yeah. <laughs> and and it's, it's an excellent one. It's another one where you really have to visualize. Trust me. Part two of Revelation, guess what you're going to be doing for many, many days. There are going to be many weeks. You get to draw the entire book of Revelation out visually. You are groaning now, and you will groan through the whole thing, but it's okay with me. <laughs> no, no. But here's what I know. Every student I have ever asked after the fact about what seemed to help them the most in their precept training as far as the book of Revelation, they said that the weeks that they did their drawings, that's what they remember the most. It helped them to remember details, how it lays out in sequential order. So enjoy it. Okay. All right. So now I'm on day three. <laughs> okay. So now we're going to be look about, we're going to talk about, um, he tells them a, a commendation. He commends them for something. What does he tell them right up for? Don't you love the fact that he starts by commending them first? Attaboys all the way through. Attaboy, attaboy, attaboy. This is an excellent parenting tool. It's an excellent teaching tool. You always need to exhort people first, then you can hammer them later and they'll love, they'll be more accepting of it because they understand that you're also noticing the good, right? So what is the good that they have been doing? And I still don't have any room to put this. Um, let's see if I change colors, maybe I can squeeze it in here. He said, this is day three. And he tells them, uh, you have what? Okay, so you have held fast. Again, there's that word to hold, right? You have held fast my name. And what else? So you've also held fast my faith and did not deny it. I'm not going to have room to write all that. So just pretend I wrote it, okay? All right, and and so in the in the subject matter then of that we went into Jude, uh, Matthew, and Second Timothy. Correct? Okay. So tell me what you learned there about the fact that you have not denied my faith. What was her statement at the opening of day three? Let's look at that. How how she? Okay. So what does it mean? Uh, what did Jesus mean when he said, 
deny my faith and you're supposed to look up the following verses and record your insights as you look up each verse check its context now this is time consuming for people who are new in scripture new in study but you just have to understand that sometimes you have to back up a few verses and read before in order to even understand who's talking and to whom right okay so what did you learn in jude three and four That's right. You are to contend earnestly for it. Um, yeah. Did anybody look up that word contend earnestly? What did that mean? Oh, you didn't oh, pick the wrong word, huh? <laughs> you were, you were, just, what did you, which word did you look up? Okay. So what did you see about faith? Okay. Okay. So in other words, contend for faith, faith, meaning that which you are believing in that you have been persuaded toward or have put your belief in. Okay. All right. So you're to contend for it. The word contend, I want you to know is number 1864. This word contend is interesting because it's not just fight for it. It says intense effort and it's a struggle. Explain that in your faith, in your personal walk with God. What would it mean for you to contend for your faith? Okay. And how, okay. Diane? There you go, which is what was going on in Pergamum, right? See, Pergamum's letter is not attacking or asking them to address the people who are bringing it in. He's rebuking those who have brought it in. He's saying they're, they're, they have brought in this teaching of Balaam, and you're holding to it. And they are also bringing in this teaching of the Nicolaitans. But I'm telling you, it's those who are holding fast to it that I'm coming in to, to rebuke and to to put in check. I'm going to use the, the sword of my mouth and I am coming to make war with those who are holding those teachings fast. Okay. So in this case, in Jude three and four, he's saying, contend earnestly for the faith that you put your faith in for the fact that you put your faith in this name called Jesus, right? Go ahead. Yes. Excellent. No, it's not going to be. How how many of you in here think that walking with the Lord in your totality? You you ladies really have a a, a lot of probably insight on this throughout your life of being a Christian. How much discipline and how much effort have you had to put? in holding to being a Christian, how much easier would it be to walk away? I, I have people in my life and friends I know who started out the, a faith walk with God, but then dropped it, walked away. Why? Because it, 
it wasn't as easy as it was when they first entered in, which makes me wonder if they ever actually entered in initially. Maybe initially they entered in because of the fellowship, right? And because of the way that they, the support group that they got there. But when they got put out on their own to stand on their own two legs, they were not willing to contend. And so they, they fell away. Now, interesting thing is sometimes this is a process to come into our faith walk. Sometimes we do start the walk and then we fall away. And then we come back later when we realize that was where I should have stayed all along. And that can be your journey. Right. 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 So what do you think? Right. I was going to say, so what are the qualities? What are the, what are the, the things that should be in place within a body of Christ? Because this is what we're talking about, a letter to a church. How should the body of Christ itself, how should it be uh, structured so that when new people do come into faith or, or even if you're old in your faith but you start seeing someone waning right they stop showing up to church and you and you don't know why what should you do how about call them yeah exactly how about reach out to them how about how about say hey let's have lunch and then have a conversation yes it is this is why a faith walk with god is not an emotional decision it's one that should be taken with soberness of attitude and, and thought. You understand that you literally have entered into covenant with Almighty God, the mighty God, the wonderful counsel of the eternal God, the Prince of Peace. You're, he is your Savior. He is also God with you, meaning he lives within you and dwells within you. If, in fact, you have made that commitment to him. And in this case, this letter is writing to those who have. And he, but Jesus is saying, basically, we didn't look at, it. I think we should have gone into Hebrews. I looked at in Hebrews, I think it's 12, where it talks about the discipline of God towards his children, that you can be assured that if you walk away, if you fall away, if you start holding to other things, God is going to come and discipline you. Um, when we studied covenant, one of the things we saw was most of all people, mighty Moses, when he was coming out of Egypt and about to lead the people in, into the land of promise, he wasn't quite there, but he was on the journey and he had his wife with him. You know what God did? He had not, he had not circumcised his own son. He had not done that. So you know what God did to him? Put him on his deathbed. And he was so close to death and so sick. Finally, Sephora, his wife, uh, performed the act of circumcision and he, she literally threw the foreskin of this child at the feet of her son. And he says, he said, you are a blood covenant to me. Understand that you must obey God. Even the, the mighty leaders do not get to get away with not obeying God in something as overtly obvious as circumcision, which it was for the Jewish nation. That was one of their primary signs that they were in covenant with God. It was their daily reminder was this circumcision uh, procedure that they were to do. It was a covenant sign to the nation. 
not for necessarily for the individual, although it could have been for that as well, but was primarily for the nation because everyone in that nation was to be circumcised. And Moses had not done that. Do you know what happened as soon as the circumcision occurred? He got better because he got well. And then what did he do? Wander in the, in the wilderness for 40 years <laughs> with a lot of disobedient people, right? <laughs> but God does not let it go if you and I are holding fast to something that he has said no. He wants you to know who you're to hold fast to. And it's the one who holds the real sword, right? The sword of, of uh, his mouth. Okay, now the other one we looked at was in Matthew. And this is a warning about some of the ways that you might fall into denying your faith. But how you can, basically how you can keep from doing that. Do you, do you have your Matthew 5? Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until it is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. I think that's really interesting because it's showing you that there is actually room for people who, who fall in that place. God will discipline them. He may remove them. He may even take their life because Moses was very close to losing his life. There is a sin unto death, First John teaches, for those who don't follow. But he says, but whoever keeps and teaches them, he should be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So how do you contend for the faith? How do you not deny the name of Christ? Yeah, you, it's plain as can be. You keep his commandments. You hold his commandments fast, not the, the, not the teachings of other things. Do not fall victim to the craziness that sometimes is out in our world. Do, can, do any of you know of some of the, the examples that I think she had asked us at one point, how do you see this in the world today around you? Think about this. What kind of things are being fed to our churches now that are not holding fast to these basic truths about who Jesus is? Okay, one of the big ones is, hey, don't worry about your sin, whatever it is, your sexual sins or your sins, lust of pride and uh, right, the, the lust of the hearts, whatever it is, you're not allowed, you're fine, no problem, right? Huh? Tolerance of sin. Yes, right. He's not the only way. There are other ways to also get to Jesus, to heaven. Um, there are actually um, churches out there that call themselves Christian, but they don't teach that Jesus is the only way or that he's the only God. Well, there's some churches that don't even, like if you went to some churches, you don't need to worry about anything in the Old Testament at all. You don't even there you go. Licentiousness is, gets to have its way. Yeah, it's all by grace, and so you don't have to worry. See, this is why Paul wrote the book of Romans. You know, far be it that you do that, right? He keeps asking those, those questions where the, the answer is, uh, no, don't do that, right? All right, so um, really, no, no, don't tell me that. Okay, all right, so let's move on. 
Now let's talk about what you learned in uh, day four concerning Balaam. I don't think this will take us too far, too long to do. I'm going to put day four. We're all the way up to day four. We did day one, two, and three over there. So now in day four, we looked at the teaching of Balaam. Uh, what did you learn about Balaam? I, I don't want all the details because there's way too much in there. Let's, let's bring it down to the nuts and bolts. No, please don't. I mean, it's what was it, like three chapters and then a little bit of a fourth one or something like that? So the teaching of Balaam. These are one of the, this is one of the stumbling blocks. And so what did we learn about the teaching of Balaam? It's basically comes down to two things. Yep, yep. To eat food. Idols and, uh-huh, to commit acts of immorality. Okay, so, and that's in verse 14, right? 2.14. Okay, so what we saw then when we went into this cross-reference in Numbers 22 uh, through 25 is we saw that a man named Balak, and he was the king, right? King of Moab. And what was it that he did? How does Balaam come into this picture? He sends a messenger to Balaam to whoever, Balaam is somehow connected. So whoever he curses gets cursed, whoever he blesses gets blessed. And they, and Balak in, in Moab, they were afraid, the Israelites, because they were coming into the land. And they're like, oh, they're way too many. They're going to smush us. Yeah. Let's, let's curse them so we can get rid of them. Right. So Balaam was fearful that the Israelites who were coming up towards the, the, their promised land, and they were kind of in their path, but he didn't understand fully what their intentions were. God had already given instruction, though, concerning Moab earlier, right? What did he tell Israel about Moab? Yeah, go around them. Don't touch them. Their land is not the land I've given to you. So just bypass them. But once they got into the land, wipe them all out, right? You have to kill them all. Now, this is a really interesting long story, but basically in the end of what it kind of means there is God had already given them over 430 years to repent, the people that lived on that land. They, God had sent prophets and God had sent, we, we see uh Abraham encounter Melchizedek, for instance, in that area, right? That he was going to give to him near Jerusalem. And um, so the people were not just arbitrarily picked to be destroyed, but God had sent his word into that land and they had refused it. They were steep, deeply in their pagan and idolatry ways. And so God said, this is the land I'm going to give to you. We're going to wipe it clean of the of those who are unfaithful and will not receive me, those who will bring them in. They'll be proselyte uh, uh, Jews, basically. But God said about Moab, don't touch them. But apparently Balak did not know this, or maybe he did, and he, he wasn't certain about it, didn't believe it. And what he did know is this, Balaam apparently was known, right? Balak must have 
heard about Balaam in order to call for him. Come here, Balaam. I want you to prophesy for me against these people who are coming up. I'm afraid they're going to destroy us. We don't know what they're going to do to us, right? So Balaam had a reputation that God worked through him to make prophetic utterances, and they came true. Now, we don't know anything beyond that, but what we do know about Balaam is what? What do we know about Balaam? And, and don't ever try to add into it, but what do we know about him? Okay. So it seems like Balaam had an understanding of the Lord, of Yahweh, and he understood that, that going into counsel with God was necessary to get the word of God. So he was doing that part of it. So it seems like there was at least the mechanics of doing what he should have done, correct? But when he went and God gave him his word, what happened? The first time he said, no, go back. But then they sent probably money and a bunch of other stuff to bribe him. And he asked God again after God already said, do not. Do not. So what's the message in all of this about Balak's relationship to the Lord? Balaam, the, the prophet who speak, who's supposed to utter uh, uh, commands against Israel. I mean, listen, he went to the Lord and God gave him his word. If God has given us his word about who he is and about what covenant is with him, about what relationship with him is about, and he has said, thou shalt not, and he gives you the list of things that you shall not do, and then he says, and thou shall, and he tells you what, how you should live. Once he has done that with Balaam, he had a specific question. He went to him and said, Lord, you know, this is what the request is, and God said, you shall not do what? Do not curse my people Israel, right? And do not go with him. And then instead of just saying, yes, Lord, okay, Lord, obey, obeying, holding fast to that truth, Balaam says, oh, let me reconsult with the Lord. Let me just go back and consult again. Has God said it's like the temptation. Yes, exactly. The temptation in the garden. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So what we really see here is a man who has a claim to a, a title of relationship with God, but it doesn't appear to me that he has a real faithful relationship with the Lord. And in this, God uses him, though, to do a few things, right? In the end, what we see is Balaam was unable, though, to curse Israel. Isn't that interesting? So it, it's a great example of how God can use an ungodly person sometimes. So every time Balaam went out to speak about the people, to give a curse to the people, instead it turned to a blessing out of his mouth. Why? Because God controlled what he said. You cannot curse my people. These are my people. I'm in covenant with them. They are my chosen people. And so he, every time he blessed them, pretty soon Balak is really upset, right? And he's like, get out of here. You're, you're a problem. But because Balaam was unable to curse, God would not let him. What did Balaam do instead? Well, yeah, he blessed them. But what did he do to help Balak? Do you remember? It says Balaam was unable to curse Israel. We see that in Numbers 22. Well, then when you hit 31, what happens? 
There you go. Yeah, it doesn't give us the instruction that he he. I mean, we don't see all the scripture and we're not in numbers. So we get the full storyline. But what it tells us in Numbers 31, though, is that um, he taught Balak another way to defeat Israel. OK, I can't curse them, but let me teach you how they will be cursed. What? What what did Balak do? He 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 enticed through deceit, through temptation. Right. He. So that they would play the harlot with the daughters of Moab, Numbers 25, uh, 1, right? So this is what we know about ba Balaam. He could not curse Israel. So he taught... Um, uh, Balak how to defeat Israel. How to get around it. Because God was not going to let him curse Israel, so he taught Balak how to defeat Israel instead, right? And then, so this is how. He, 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 he taught them, number one, through the counsel of Balaam in Numbers 25, 1 to 9, we see that the people of Peor caused the sons of Israel to do what? Yeah. And in the end, they, did, they trespassed against the Lord. In other words, they sinned against God, right? Yeah. He taught the people. There you go. Pure. There you go. Good question. You know what else is interesting? We did not we did not look at it, but when he when you get to that second one that Kristen just mentioned, which was in Numbers 25, where he said, and Israel began to play the harlot with the daughters of Moab. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, there's a whole passage in there that God gives through Moses to the Israelites before they go into the land itself. And he says to them, do not let your sons marry their daughters and do not let their daughters marry your sons. If they do, those pagan worshipers, those who do not know me, they are going to pollute it. They are going to draw your sons and daughters away from me and I will have to evict you off the land. That's in Deuteronomy 7. What? Okay, wait a minute. God said, do not play the harlot with their women. I mean, the demonstration here is playing the harlot with women. But what else do you think was going on? The women were doing what? We know this for sure. Because he talks about it here next. In Numbers 25, what have, an Israelite man brought what? A Medanite woman to his rel relatives, right? What was that about? Why did he bring the Midianite woman to his relatives? What man brings a woman home to meet mom and dad? For what purpose? Usually it's to announce or to, to make a, get an approval basically for a relationship of some sort. Usually in this context, marriage, right? That he wanted to marry her. And um, God had told him not to do that. What happened? Yeah, Aaron's son took care of business. He yeah. <laughs> so if your mom and dad say no, yeah. just keep that, that just keep in mind. 
<laughs> That's right. You, you two young girls, not married yet. Do not marry a man uh, that your parents have not put approval on. I mean, there's a principle here, but we won't. We will not approve if Kristen starts pulling out a spear. However, <laughs> so. <laughs> huh. Okay, cause them uh, to trespass against the Lord. Okay, that's in, I'm going to put on here uh, numbers 25, 1 to 9, and then you see it in uh, also in 31, 16 to 18. That kind of is the, the short of it. But you guys had the whole chapters to run, to run through, four chapters there that you were supposed to look. Okay, that was the first thing. And the second thing, it says Balaam's counsel to Balak led Israel to begin to play the harlot with the daughters. Okay. Um, his counsel to Balak. In the end, he led uh, Israel. What does it mean to play the harlot? Yeah. Basically, because they were joining themselves with the daughters, the women of a pagan culture where they were not being faithful to God. And therefore, now Corinthians teaches on that, right? Is it 2 Corinthians 6? It says, in essence, don't be unequally yoked. That's another big, 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 big problem in our churches today. We have believing girls and boys marrying unbelieving spouses. How many of us have seen that go very wrong? Do not do it, girls and boys. And moms and dads, you know, fight it as much as you can. Obviously, you're not in control of your children's decisions. If they really want to do it, they're going to do it. But they'll learn the hard way why they shouldn't have. Most of those marriages don't make it. I mean, it's hard enough to have two believing spouses come together and make it. I am one of the very few blessed. Married a long, 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 long time. <laughs> but God has said, don't do that. That's playing the harlot. Because what does, uh, in 1 Corinthians 6, it says, what does light have to do with darkness? They have nothing in common. Okay, led uh, Israel to play the harlot with the daughter, daughters of Moab. Ooh, my marker came back. Okay. I know. I was shaking it at you. <laughs> I should do that more. <laughs> okay, so basically they were lured. They were enticed. Why? By beautiful women. And even led. In other words, somebody was saying to them, yeah, go ahead, no problem. Or they were saying nothing. Okay, you know, behind your back, they were going, I shouldn't do that, I shouldn't do that. But they weren't telling you. Can I ask a question because I don't remember the order of things, but I know there was all these rules about if you were going to marry someone that was not, and the, the woman had to be shaved and all this stuff to take away the beauty portion, and then they sat, and then you could marry I don't remember where that is. Ooh, that I don't. We've already like gotten to that at this point. Mm -mm. Or this comes after this point. Okay. I don't think I've ever heard that. Nope. Okay. <laughs> I'll find it. I'll let you know. 
it's tradition probably and so there may and it may be alluded to in scripture that, and i just didn't pick up on it yep i know there's a lot of scripture so i'm not i'm not an expert on all of it okay so they were they were lured enticed and even led back into um worldly world worldliness there we go got it all right, this is what happens to a church when they stop holding fast to the one they're in covenant with. They, you can, if you don't think a believer can be led to fall into some kind of sin, they can. It's necessary that we as the body of Christ keep one another in account. It's also necessary, I'm sorry to say, for us to rebuke and to, to correct. The scripture even itself, itself says that the purpose of it is to rebuke and to correct and to train up in righteousness. We have to keep one another accountable and you need to be open enough with people around you in your circle. Doesn't mean the whole world needs to know what's going on with all of your issues. But I, I cannot express enough how important it is for you to have one or two really close friends that you share and really bear your soul. Bear one another's burdens, right? Lift one another up in prayer. But accountability relationships are so necessary. In, in this case, how in the world did Israel get enticed back? Well, if you think of the context, they had not been out of it for very long. It was pretty easy for them to fall back. So the younger you are in your faith, the more important it is for you to grab hold of a strong believer and keep them in your life on a regular basis to help you stay in the word of God, stay in prayer, stay in church, right? Find a way. If you can't attend a church, do what I've been doing through all my sinus surgeries and all my, and the COVID and all that, that I, you know, fortunately slept through most of, um, you do it by watching videos, go, go online, go on YouTube, go on your TV sets, find a way to be fed spiritually, but you got to stay holding fast to this so that you don't do this. Okay. All right. Now, interesting stuff here. Let's go in and look very quickly at, I know we're, we're getting short. That's good. Keep me on task. Okay. Where Satan dwells. Now this is going to be your historical research part. So we can just chat on this. I'm not going to write it down. Tell me what it meant where say, uh, Satan's uh, dwells. What does that mean? Did you look and did you see that there were two possibilities for interpretation? Yes. Oh, good. Mar uh, Martha, tell us what you saw. It was one of the two, which is very interesting. Um, what did you learn about the, the throne of the altar of Zeus? Which, I, by the way, I have a picture of it right here in my photos. Uh, right here where you see a cluster of trees, that's where the altar of Zeus was. Do you know what they did with that altar when they excavated? Tell us, Martha. It is in Berlin. It's been there since the early uh, 1900s, right? Okay, so it was excavated in the late 1800s. They dug it up, took it to Berlin, put it in a museum there. What else did you learn about it? It's very interesting though, because this is cool. Okay, let me just read. Did you have any notes on it? Okay, it says it was, uh, 
the original altar was cut on the Acropolis rock, right? It's a symbol of uh, rampant paganism. The whole, the whole system of it was. The excavation of this site was moved to Germany where it later inspired Hitler who made speeches from the seat of Satan. Did you guys read on that? I found a video, I do not know how, again, it was the Lord, and it's a little scary. I'm not sure if I really want to send it out, but, and I don't know who these people are that put it together, but he goes through and shows all the connections to the Satan of this altar and how it influenced Germany once it got there and how Germany literally went right down the toilet as soon as it arrived there and was erected. People there were so enthralled with this seat and this throne of Satan the seat of Satan, the temple of Zeus, that this became a, a formidable influence on them. They admired it. They, they googled and gagaed over it, sort of. Well, uh, Hitler was one. And it says that actually that when he gave his final solution uh, speech, it was from that throne. So... I know it gives you the creeps. It, it made me sick. As a matter of fact, I, I did send this video to my friend Celeste and she watched it and her immediate response to me afterwards is that creeped me out. And it showed, you know, what uh, Hitler did was the way the throne is situated, the structuring of it um, logistically, he would have his army march in that way to form that temple throne. Do you know how you've ever seen them in these in this very oblong strict, that was what he was mimicking, was the throne of all of the altar of Zeus. Yes. I, think I was born in Germany. Yes, thank you. I was there for about 12 years before I came here. Good. What I would like to indicate is the fact that Hitler was not happy about Hitler. I bet they weren't. Yeah. I'm talking about the leadership and the people who did what they did. Yes. They did it because they just No, yeah. And I'm not talking about the general. Okay. That's kind of like us, the general population. Are we happy with what they're doing in Washington, D.C.? Can we stop it? Well, we can through some political measures, but it's tough. And a lot. And in Germany at that time, it was, your life was at stake. So people. Yes. So I'm not criticizing the German people. I'm saying it was the leadership that was Hitler and his henchmen. And th this is where they went right down the toilet. I mean, they all fell victim to this influence of satanic worship and of a satanic mind and a mind that was evil. And one of the things of the Temple of Zeus was a human sacrifice and it was burning them alive. And so what did Hitler build? and then burn people alive in the furnaces for the Jews. Yeah. So that's what I'm talking about. And I'm thankful that you helped, helped me to clarify that because I wouldn't want anyone to think, you know, that I'm, I lived in Germany too for four years. We were there at Ramstein and, and it's a beautiful country, but there is definitely this influence. And this video talks about how this really influenced Hitler, how it inspired him, how it, moved him on and it was almost like a satanic uh, possession on his part he was really we all know that that he was satanically possessed okay all right so the, then the other one is this uh temple uh the temple for the worship of caesar was there um let me just read this because we are getting really short 
Uh, it was the first city in Asia, about 29 AD, with the honor of having a worship center for the Caesars. It was the first one. Um, it was bestowed by Rome, and what it did was it granted them what was called Ius Gladii, I-U-S-G-L-A-D-I-I, if you want to write that down. It's called the right of the sword. Now, this is interesting because it comes right in line with Jesus's word about what he's going to do. And it almost seems like maybe this is probably more likely what the seat of Satan had to do with was this worship of a, of a human making them a deity, right? Uh, the governor could, on his own word, make the decision of capital punishment. He had the power of life and death and on the spot at any moment, this right of the sword could be used against any citizen. So when it talks about Antipas, who died among you, the idea that maybe he pulled a sword and slayed him, uh, you know, other things are, are about the altar of Zeus that he was burned alive, right? That Antipas was burned alive. But it really goes more in line with the sword of the mouth that's coming out of Jesus that he's coming with, contrasting like, like Rebecca has been doing all this contrast thing, the contrast to it would be the Caesar worship where they were granted the ability that if you did not call Caesar God and did not pay homage to him, they could on the spot pull a sword and slay you with their sword. But Jesus has a double-edged sword. Isn't that interesting? So that was, those are the two possibilities. Either the throne of Satan is the, the altar of Zeus, which was definitely there now in Germany, or the temple for the worship of Caesar. But there was also another temple worship there, um, Aklepios. Aklepios? Is that, print, is that close? Does anybody know? He was called the god of Pergamum. He was the god of healing and of truth and of prophecy. This is interesting. He was taught to have a, you know, he was thought to have a snake form. Uh, and to, he, they used tame snakes in their temple healing treatments. People from all over the Roman Empire came to this particular healing center. It was huge. And it was very renowned. And it, uh, some of its um, methods even were for mental illness. And to this day, a lot of their methods are still implied, put into practice. Interesting. Uh, healing Temple was famous throughout the Roman Empire. People far and away traveled there. Interesting stuff. So again, one more possible uh, background to what was going on with these people that they could get lured and enticed back into that which they were familiar with. Uh, there were external pressures, pressures and exposure to pagan worship in many forms. The markets were filled with idolatrous implements and foods. The numerous and religious uh, holidays, those things that came on a regular basis, were all pagan. The routine feasts and sacrifices to idols. When we were at Ephesus, I, uh, I'm sure you saw it, and it's true here too, they just don't have it excavated quite as well. But when you go down the colonnade of Ephesus heading toward the Library of Celsus, on both sides are little tiny worship centers for all the different gods. And they would do this daily. They would put food, food libations or, or liquid libations in there for their God. So this is routine all the time. Um, even successive Caesars demanded this homage. So it wasn't like it was just one Caesar 
at one time in history, it was every, after that, after it got established that Caesar worship was okay, and that whoever became Caesar was God, then they, it became a, a routine. So Caesar one, Caesar two, Caesar three, each of the Caesars got to be worshiped as God. Okay, so that is basically the stumbling blocks that were there for, for them. The last thing is the Nicolaitans, which I don't have a lot of time to cover, um, but this is also another stumbling block that's not Balaam, but the Nicolaitans, okay? What did you learn about the Nicolaitans? What do you know about them? That's the correct answer. Nothing. <laughs> Not one answer from one of them. <laughs> Possibly, right. And that's a possibility. Okay. Basically, we don't know, and Scripture does not explain it any further, but what we do have is suggestions that are given to us through the writings of church fathers and church historians. People like Irenaeus, you guys have heard of him, Clement of Alexandria, we've heard of him, Tertullian, we've heard of him, right, and there's a lot of others. Um, they all unite in one common theme about this subject of the Nicolaitans, and that is that it was somehow... Um, uh, united with Gnosticism, which absolutely is covered in the Word of God. First uh, John, the whole book is written to counter this Gnostic teaching that was going on at that time. So if the church uh, writers are correct, God says to counter Gnostic teachings, again, uh, first you have to understand what their Gnostic teachings are. They teach for higher knowledge, right? They teach that the higher knowledge belongs to only a special few. So not all. So sorry, Kaylee. You don't get to be. I'm. I am the enlightened one here. So they lorded it over people, and and the the name Nicolaitan can mean conqueror or the destroyer of the people. So what they do is they lord it over people and destroy them in that way. Um, there is in their teaching a separation of spirit and matter and the two do not have an effect on one another. Now the result of this, I'm not gonna go into a lot of detail. You can research this if you, if you get interested. When I teach First John, and we might do that in the future sometime soon, we go through this in great detail and we make all the applications that are there in in the book of first john about it but here's what it results in the nicolaitan teaching god cannot become flesh because flesh and matter are separate uh, jesus is not god because they can't be because one was a man, a man in flesh that god is a spirit and he's good flesh is evil so they jesus could not be god that is a problem <laughs> um, and and also that Jesus could not have been God on the cross so God did not die for you Jesus did and Jesus was just a man your blood his blood and his flesh which is told to us that it's through the blood of Christ and through that sacrifice and through the renting of his flesh that the holy place is made open to us Hebrews teaches us right we have access to the father because of that they would say no 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 Blood and flesh, those are matter, and they're evil. Problem, right? <laughs> uh, and so the flesh and his blood had no effect on their spiritual state. And by the way, since flesh and matter are separate and flesh is evil, 
and spirit is good, your spirit can have a relationship with God and you're going to heaven, no problem. But you can do anything you want in your flesh because the two are not connected. There's no relationship to them. That's what the Gnostics teach. But do you see how that would fit in with what happened with the stumbling of the people who were falling for the teachings of Balaam and the teachings of the Nicolaitans? If, in fact, the historical records are correct, and I believe they probably are, I mean, it really makes sense, um, then these people were being taught these Gnostic beliefs about doctrinal truths that were contrary to what they had been told about. Jesus, he is mighty God. He is counselor. He is the eternal father. He is the prince of peace. He is Emmanuel, who is God with us. In other words, the spirit dwells within your physical body. Ew, is what the Gnostic would say. Not possible, right? So again, it would fall as a conflict. We need to hold fast to what we know is true, that God has taught us. The Gnostics would teach you something else. Um, Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, exactly. Good. Good point. Yeah. I'm sorry. I got to keep moving. Um, just a few more minutes. So the verses that refute this are in Revelation 1, 1 Timothy 2, Hebrews 10. Of course, 1 John, All there's a great verse in verse 1 John 2. Uh, 12 to 14, he says, I write to you, little children. I write to you, fathers. You guys remember this? And he says, you all know him. But Gnostic teaching, only the enlightened few at the top of the pecking order have this enlightenment. But first John says, no, no, no. You little children, you know the father. Yes, you young men, you know him. And you old, the fathers, you, you aged men, you know him. You have a relationship with him. So it, that first John in those three little tiny verses refutes totally the teaching of Gnosticism and special enlightenment for only a few. He says, no, you all have access to the father. So if you understand in first John, that's what he's talking about. He's trying to refute that Gnostic teaching. Then it makes perfect sense why he says that. So now the last thing I'm going to talk about real quickly is the overcomers. Um, how were the teachers of Balaam described in Jude 10 to 16? Just rattle them off. Jude, you looked at 10 to 16, right? What does he say about what they are, who, what they look like? Yeah. Clouds without water. What good is that? Right? If you're wanting to water your fields, what else? Trees without fruit. Worthless, right? What else? Verse 16 has a huge list. Fault finders. Following. Yeah, they fl I like that one. They flatter people. In other words, like false teachers who come in your midst who want you to be led astray by them, they might say almost anything just to flatter you. They wouldn't call you on the carpet for your sin. 
They wouldn't say, look, you have a responsibility. Yeah, you're saved by grace, but now you're walking in your faith. This is sanctification. You're responsible to be obedient to God's word. There is what's called the royal law. James chapter two talks about keeping the royal law and you do well. You have to keep the royal law. God, Jesus says, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Yes, he put aside the temple works, that part of the law put aside. But the heart of the law, the Ten Commandments, those are kept. Those are forever. Those are the moral laws of God. And he says you shouldn't love the Lord your God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. And if you do these two things, you fulfill the whole law, right? So those things, you but they will flatter. They will flatter you. Yes, in order to gain, to gain your trust and to get ahead and to be looked, look respectable. I, I can't tell you how I've seen uh, things online and I've even been in Sunday school classes where we've had a visitor come in or whatever. And they just, they teach the, the most ridiculous things. And I'm thinking, where are the spiritual discerners that would, and why did somebody allow them in? Who didn't? Check this person out to know that what they were going to be teaching had nothing to do with the Word of God, right? Crazy. Okay, somebody read for me in closing Romans 16, 17 to 20. If you can read it loudly, then the, the, it'll pick it up on the mic. Kaylee, have you got it? Oh, Okay. Rome, uh, Romans 16, verses 17 to 20. Yeah, I'm hoping Kaylee can do it because she's closest to my mic. Yep. Now I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances, contrary to the teaching which you've learned, and turn away from them. For such men are slaves, not of our Lord Christ, but of their own appetite, and by their smooth and flattering speech they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. For the report of your obedience has reached to all. Therefore, I am rejoicing over you, but I want you to be wise in what is good and innocent and what is evil. Okay. Yeah, verse 20. Go ahead and do verse 20. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. Didn't it almost sound like that's a letter that could have been written to, to Pergamum? This is, a, in the book of Romans, this seems like it could have been a follow-up letter to the church of Pergamum after they got this one. Listen, God, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. He will. But he's coming with that two-edged sword to also discipline his people. Those of you who walk with me, you are to hold fast my name, which is what he commended them for at the beginning. You hold fast my name, right? But then he said, but here's what you're also doing. There are some among you who are holding fast to something else. And you need to know who you are. Pay attention. You need to discern it. You need to clean up your act. Basically, Acts 15 says, don't even associate with anyone uh, that pertains to immorality or, or idolatry. That's in Acts 15. You guys look that one up. You, of course, Acts 17, 11, you're to be a Berean. What do the Bereans do? They, and they check everything that's being taught to them what? In this, to see if it's true or not. If Paul comes in to visit in our classroom and he teaches us something, what should we be doing? Hmm, Paul, I think you're wrong on that, right? We should be, no, actually, we should be going, good job, Paul. He's, he knows his stuff, right? 
but you need to discern. And what he said, what he said about the Bereans was they were of more noble mindedness than the Thessalonians because at Berea, whenever he taught them, they went back to the scriptures to say, is that true? Oh yeah, sure enough, here it is. They checked it out. That's what you and I are to do. And that is what the message is here to us at this church. Check yourself to make sure that what you're holding fast to is true and that you've not been led astray by someone's false teaching. Amen. Yay, we did it. I'm sorry, Kristen tried to get me off here five or 10 minutes ago, right? I tried, I'm 10 minutes over.